All right. We'll be in Genesis 22 tonight. I'll get the clicker here. All right, we're going to be keeping our tradition of uh, studying the Old Testament on Sunday nights. Um, I've been working on this passage for a couple weeks now, and uh, back to there. There we go. Um, I've had the pleasure of studying the Old Testament again. It's been a while. I've been studying a lot of time in the New Testament, but it's been refreshing to go back to the Old because you really see how powerful it is. You really see what God has for us there. Um, and you really can't understand the Testaments um, independently. You really have to be a student of both. Um, you really need to be a student of the Old Testament and the New Testament because they're really dependent on each other for, for their interpretation. So, And tonight I think will be an example of that. But whenever you go to the Old Testament, you can expect that you're going to find something that's going to be profitable. Profitable for training you, for proving you, for correcting you, for instructing you, all these things. You can expect to find that here in the Old Testament, on the pages of the Old Testament. So I think our tradition of Sunday nights or sometime during the week of using the Old Testament, studying it, is a very good tradition. Um, but that's not what the sermon's going to be about tonight. That's just uh, introductory. Get us excited about the Old Testament again. But uh, last night, in our house, a true dilemma arose. The two oldest boys in our house, I'm not going to tell you their names to protect their reputation, um, they had an encounter. Um, they're starting to realize that there's cooler toys out there than Thomas the Tank Engine and his friends. They're starting to realize that. But they're still at the top of the list. So the oldest boy, he gathers as many favorite characters as possible in his arms and holding him. The younger one comes along and jealousy. Jealousy's there. And I know you've seen this before. So on the oldest boy's mind, the last thing is sharing. First thing on the, young, or the middle boy is uh, he's thinking jealousy. So I, I said, okay, you guys need to share the toys, like any responsible parent would say. Um, so he thinks about it. The oldest thinks about it. So he reluctantly but strategically gives away his least favorite toy <laughs> to the youngest one. The middle one, he knows it. He knows what happened. So out of anger, he throws the toy across the room. So at this point, I started to use some decisive Solomonic wisdom, and I confiscate all the toys. And then I offered a new counseling session to them. Um, but that didn't work. A couple seconds later, the oldest bursts out in a volcanic tantrum. So I took him aside, and atonement was made, and it wasn't substitutionary atonement. Um, but as humorous as that story may seem, as humorous as that may be, it might make us laugh. It truly did remind me of how we respond when the things are, taking, are taken away from us that are most precious to us how our hearts respond when that happens to us, even as adults. It was a reminder of that. Uh, Tim, this morning in Sunday school, we're going through the book of Malachi for Sunday school. Uh, he reminded us that people under Malachi's ministry were basically giving God the leftovers in their sacrifices. Uh, 1.14, Malachi 1.14 says, or God says, but cursed be the swindler who is a male, flock in, a, or male in his flock and vows it, but instead sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So you see this tendency throughout the history of man. So what's most precious to you tonight? 
What do you have in your life that's most precious to you? Something you don't want to give up, something you want to hold on to. And how do you respond whenever you're called to give that thing up, whenever you're called to sacrifice it? So uh, tonight I really want to consider an Old Testament character who will be a great example of that truth. Someone who is faced with a similar situation, but on a far grander scale than you or I, I believe, will ever face. A very grand scale. We're going to consider Abraham's test of faith in Genesis 22. So if you go and turn there, that'd be great. So tonight in particular, we're going to look at three movements of the story, and they're going to teach us to have faith in God when we have to sacrifice what's most precious to us. So we'll look at these three movements, and they're going to help teach us this lesson of how to handle this, how to actually trust God, how to have faith in God when we have to give up what's most precious to us. So let's look at movement number one, the test of faith. Movement number one, the test of faith in verses one and two. So concerning this test, and you'll see what the test is in a moment, I have three questions for you. Three questions as we seek to discover what the actual test is, what this test of faith is. Question number one is, what is the test? What is the test that God gives Abraham here? We'll go ahead and read. 22 verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So there's the test. God tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah and offer Isaac as a whole burnt offering. If you don't know what burnt offerings include, it's, it's gruesome. It's slicing up the animal and burning them as a whole. So imagine if God told you to do something like that. Your only son you love, slice him up and burn him to death. That is a test indeed. So the question we might ask is, how could God ask Abraham to do something so detestable, something so gross? Well, it's not an easy question, and I don't have the great answer for you tonight. But uh, one question would be, did, did, uh, did Abraham have the book of uh, Deuteronomy in his possession? Did he have the rest of the Torah in his possession? Well, the answer to that is no, obviously. So if you look at a passage from Deuteronomy 18, where God tells the Israelites, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. So it is a command by God not to do this kind of thing. But Abraham, in his time, way back in biblical history, didn't have that command yet. And in fact, child sacrifice was common in Abraham's day. He came from Ur of the Chaldees and a, a pagan culture where this kind of thing happened on a regular basis in that context. Now, saying that it doesn't really make it any easier to swallow, but it does kind of help us start, start to understand what Abraham's thought process might have been. It wouldn't have been as foreign to him as it was to us. And really, we should approach the whole Bible this way. The Bible is a book deep, deep in Israel's history, and the historical context is different than ours. So we need to think through these types of questions whenever we study it. And really, if you think about it, we sacrifice our kids in many more ways than we actually realize today as culture, all kinds of ways, and I think you could probably imagine. That's the first question. What is the test? Second question, what's at stake here? What's at stake here? Why is this such a significant test? The next question here. So as if child sacrifice weren't hard enough, let's look at whom 
God asked Abraham to sacrifice. So the text says, talks about the power of a father's love. It says, take now your son. Take your only son. Okay, you think, all right, well, Abraham had another son, Ishmael, right? Okay, well, what happened to Ishmael? If you were to look back at chapter 21, you'd see that Abraham sent away that son. Abraham sent him away. Sarah was basically being a jerk, okay, because she finally had her son, and she's mocking Hagar. Um, she said, okay, you know, now that we have the true heir, we don't need your spare anymore. We don't need Ishmael anymore. Um, we, we, got our, we got our promised son, Isaac. So Abraham, that, that distressed Abraham. But God said, okay, I understand, but listen, listen to Sarah. Listen to Sarah. Do send them away. Because, in fact, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. That's what God said. It's going to be through Isaac. So in this sense, Abraham was left with one son, okay, because Ishmael is gone at this point. So take your son, your only son, whom you love. And I think as a parent, even if you're not a parent, you can understand that if you have a child, you're going to love that child with everything you have. You're going to do whatever it takes to preserve the safety of that child. That's just a given. Abraham loves Isaac. Abraham loves Isaac. So... What's at stake there is the power of a father's love. What's also at stake is the posterity of a Jewish of the Jewish nation. The posterity of the Jewish nation. This is big stuff. Isaac wasn't just any boy. He was the son of promise. Okay? He was the son of promise. Look back at Genesis chapter 12. I believe it on the screen there, yeah. Look back at Genesis chapter 12, and the first three verses will, will tell us this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you, make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's the beginning of the promise to Abraham from God. Now on to chapter 15. Look at 15, 2 through 5. Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? And this is before they had Ishmael. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This is what God told Abram. This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Okay, so it's getting more specific. Chapter 17 will get even more specific. Chapter 17. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name, what? Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with who? With him, with Isaac, for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So this is the posterity of the Jewish nation at stake. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There'd be no Jacob if there were no Isaac. So that's the posterity of the Jewish nation. What also is at stake? What also is at stake is the plan of redemption. Have you ever read Matthew 1? It's a tough chapter to read, a lot of names. But what's the lineage? What does it trace? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then eventually Christ. So, could God have done it a little bit differently, used a different family? Of course, but this is who God decided to use. 
Abraham's family, Isaac's family. This is how God promised it would happen. Isaac was the son of promise. This is what's at stake, okay? Isaac, or Abraham loves Isaac. The, the whole history of the Jewish nation is at stake, and the plan of redemption is at stake. This is a really, extremely big test. So that's what's at stake. The question number three would be, how would you respond? How would you respond to this kind of test? There's three broad, common responses that many of us would have. First would probably be, for many of us, without the Holy Spirit's power, it would be unbelief. We just wouldn't believe it. We would go on and do our next thing. Um, and this isn't the first time that God told Abraham to do something that didn't really compute with his human reasoning. It's not the first time this has happened. Uh, do you remember how he responded whenever God promised him that he would have Isaac? Remember what he did? He laughed. There's no way, you know. Hey, my wife, Sarah, you think she's, think she's young enough to have a baby? There's, that's not going to happen. He laughed. Verse 17, or chapter 17. God says, I will bless her, and indeed I will give her a son, give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? No way. This is, this is funny stuff. God, this, this is ridiculous. That's how he responded with unbelief. So we could respond that way. We could also respond with bitterness. And this is also a very, very popular approach to these kind of trials, is just get really bitter, really angry. It's our natural response. You guys know of uh, Ludwig Beethoven? Anyone heard of him? Okay, yes, you've heard of him. You know what happened to Beethoven? Something traumatic in his life that happened? Yeah. He, uh, he had great problems with his hearing, went deaf. But he's arguably the one that ushered in the romantic era of music. Big stuff, okay, really big stuff from the music world. Really big stuff. Started out rough, but people started to catch on and say, wow, this guy's got some good stuff. But he started losing his hearing by the age of 31. And then how did he respond? He was a bitter man. He writes a letter to a friend. Beethoven says this, How often I wish that you were with me, friend, for I live most unhappily in discord with nature and with the Creator. More than once I have cursed God for exposing his creatures to the slightest accident so that often the loveliest blossoms are destroyed and broken by it. How miserably I must live and avoid all that is dear and precious to me. That was Beethoven's response to this kind of adversity. When something was taken that was most precious to him, his musical abilities to hear his music, was taken away from him. He responded with great bitterness and cursed God. This is what Job's wife wanted to do, what he wanted Job to do, right? Curse God and die. Don't respond with bitterness. But it does get the point. What's, what's a music, musician without hearing? What's a mechanic without hands? What's a, a painter without eyesight? What's Abraham without the son of promise? Okay? What's all these things that are most precious to these types of people? So how do we want to respond? The third response would be belief and obedience. Belief and obedience. This is what God wants us to do in times like these. So in our next verses, we're going to see how Abraham does respond. We're going to see how he responds. Does he become bitter? Does he laugh it off in unbelief? Or does he obey? So that was the test of faith. Now we're going to look at the trek of faith. And you'll see why we're calling it a trek here in a moment. It doesn't happen automatically. 
So this is Abraham's test of faith. Should he still trust God in light of all these difficulties, all these problems, well, all these things that are at stake? Should he still trust God? And the answer is yes. So we're going to see why. So we're going to see how Abraham does respond. So this is movement number two. Movement number two, the trek of faith in verses 3 through 10. So we're going to see in these verses that Abraham does accept God's test. He does accept it. And in these verses, it's interesting that we only hear two statements from Abraham. Only two different statements, two, but they're very bold statements. What I find significant in this passage, though, is his silence. A very silent man. And what that does for us as the reader is we can just get to watch Abraham. It helps us in our mind's eye to watch him as he's on his trek, as he's on his journey. We get to observe his obedience, his trust in God, his faith in God, even when he's about to sacrifice what's most precious to him. This is the trek of faith. Let's look at verse 3. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So this verse shows us the preparations for the, ta- for the trek, the preparations Abraham makes. So, as we said before, we don't really hear a peep out of Abraham up to this point, except for he said, here I am. That's pretty much all he said. He's a very silent man at this point. But from that silence, we can still conclude that he's a man full of pain right now, still a man who has grief in his heart. But as we'll see as the story progresses, that his faith in God is going to outweigh the fear that he has. It's going to outweigh the grief that he has. It's also interesting to see that he starts early in the morning. It's not easy for any of us to do anything early in the morning, right? Before the sun comes up, how about sacrificing your son that day or in a few days? It would be easy to get up for that. This is another thing that emphasizes his obedience. So we're not sure how God instructed Abraham. Maybe it was in a dream. Maybe he told him audibly. But the thing is, he started right away. He woke up early that morning. So it's, it's early in the morning. It's dark out still. The sun hasn't coming up yet. It's probably still a little bit cool, All right, at least for me, if you grew up in Florida. It's going to be a little bit cool. But he's already worked up a sweat because he's been splitting wood for a burnt offering. He's been loading it up, saddling the donkey. He takes his two servants, takes Isaac, and off they go. So these are the preparations. And just as a side note, what do you, what do you think he told Sarah? you think he told Sarah anything? Um, you know, what would, you know, if I, Savannah, hey, Savannah, I'm going to be taking the boys out. For, she's going to be asking where I'm going. So this is very interesting. All these dynamics at play are very interesting. But I'm just glad God doesn't ask us to do anything hard, right? We kind of wipe the sweat off our brows. Okay, I think you know where I'm going with this now. Matthew 10. I'm getting ahead of myself there. Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. God does ask us to do hard things, extremely hard things. We need to respond like Abraham responded here. So those are the preparations for the, for the trek. What about the perseverance on the trek? Perseverance on the trek. Small verse, but it's powerful. In verse 4, this trek continues. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Third day. It's the third day of travel. I'm not sure what time of day it was. Probably in the morning, maybe. But it's the third day. They've been at it for a little while here. It's also interesting if you're looking. You don't turn there now if you want. But Second Chronicles 3, 
uh, mentions uh, Mount Moriah as the place where Solomon began building the temple. This is where God told Abraham to go. So with that, connecting all the dots traditionally, this spot where Abraham has traveled to is the Temple Mount, the station of the Temple Mount. Very significant. And this shows you the, uh, the trek that they did. He started around here in Beersheba and about 50 miles up to around that area right there. Okay. Picture yourself at age, say, I'm not sure exactly how old Abraham was, but say 115, 110. Would you want to be traveling 50 miles by foot through the desert, perhaps on a donkey, walking next to a donkey? No. I'm not sure if I'd want to do that right now, unless it was with Shane and some of the other guys camping. But, so that, this, is a real, this is a real trek, okay? And he's been camping every night. doesn't say anything about bringing tents with them, probably sleeping out under the stars. They're probably tired from hiking. They're probably dirty. They're probably smelly. This is a real trek. And on top of all this, he's had three days to think nothing of, or nothing except, sacrificing his son. Imagine, you know, we can go camping, we can go hiking and have fun, enjoy the scenery, but imagine doing that whole thing, thinking about what's at the end of that trek, the sacrifice of your son. This is, this is true perseverance on Abraham's part. And the question for you would be, has, have you ever set out to do something for God but experienced delays in it? Has that ever happened to you? It happened to the Apostle Paul. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. Perseverance is the key. Faith in God, because he can accomplish it. Now, verses 5 through 8, the promise of the trek. Start with verse 5. So, at this point in the journey, Abraham and Isaac part company with the servants, part company with the donkey. They head off on their own to God's designated place. This is what Abraham tells his servants. It says, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Or you could say, and we will worship and we will return to you. So do you ever come across, I know you have, at work, a wind talker? Say, what are you talking about? This guy you have a question for, hey, how does this work? Can you help me with this? And they give some kind of answer, but you're like, you leave. They give me, was that an answer? Or did they just make that up? Okay, Abraham's not a wind talker here. He gives them an actual answer, a real solid, concrete answer. We're going to return to you. This is what he told, us, what he told the servants. And we're going to see why this is true confidence here in a moment. So now the scene shifts to the interaction, not with Abraham, Isaac, the donkey, and the two servants. Now it shifts to just Abraham and Isaac traveling together, walking along together. Verses 6 through 8. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And here we hear from Isaac. My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And it says it again. So the two of them walked on together. So at this point, Isaac's obviously curious. He knows something is not quite right. Something is not quite right. He doesn't see a lamb for his sacrifice. He knows how this works based on a reading of the text, but he doesn't see a lamb. This is starting to concern him. So he asks a natural question that I'm sure we'd probably ask. Hey, uh, Dad, did you bring the lamb with you, or what's going on here? Um, so I don't think at this point that Isaac believed he was the sacrifice. He might disagree with me on that, but I don't think he actually 
I don't think he knew what was happening yet, but he knew something wasn't right. So Abraham's response here again, he's not a wind talker. He gives Isaac an actual answer. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. This is a real answer. And Abraham is confident that God's going to come through and God is going to provide. So that's the promise of the trek. That's the promise made. What about the pain of the trek's destination? The pain involved. Verses 9 and 10. So they finally arrive where God told them to go. Abraham makes his final preparations. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So at this point, Isaac is bound. He's tied up. doesn't show that he struggled, but he's bound. He's placed on top of the altar. So the pain is all clear now. Everything's evident. Isaac isn't struggling. Abraham is not hesitating. This is the pain involved. So at this point, what's happening? The suspense is very high. If this were a movie, you could see it at this point. The music would be real dramatic. The suspense is very high. So no doubt, Abraham's heart is definitely beating Sweaty palms, all these things. He's about to plunge a knife into the chest of his son. This is, this is true stuff here. This is suspenseful. So at this point, what would you be doing? Would you still be trusting God? We see here the importance of action in our faith, true action in our faith. Not just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that stuff. Yeah, that's it's good. This requires true action, true action. You don't have to turn there now, but Genesis 15, 6 says, Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is back in chapter 15. We're in in chapter 22 now. Some time has definitely passed. This was true righteousness. Abraham did believe God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. True righteousness. But it was not truly demonstrated until this point of the testing in chapter 22. Now, I know some of you think, some of you probably know where I'm going with this now. James, great when we have New Testament support for what we're about to say. That's why James asks, in James chapter 2, was not Abraham our father justified or demonstrated to be righteous by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And the answer is, yeah. This he was truly demonstrated to be a righteous man of God. He was truly shown to be justified whenever he did this. Action is very important in our faith. We can't just sit around and say, yeah, okay, I believe what God said. I, you know, I, got, I got my New Testament stuff down. You know, I'm listening to sermons on my iPod or whatever. I'm good. I'm good. No, action. And I'm not sure. I can't sit here and tell you what action you need to take, but that's between you and God as you study his word. But true faith requires real action. So that's, this is all the pain of the trek's destination. This is the trek of faith. So at this point in the story, we've seen the test of faith. God gives Abraham what looks like an impossible command. It seems to contradict everything that God's promised. And then we saw the the trek of faith and all the perseverance involved in that. But Abraham unflinchingly accepts God's test with faith faith and obedience. So that's what's happened at this point in movements one and two. And then the last movement of the story, movement number three, is the testimony of faithfulness. In verses 11 through 19. So this movement of the story, movement number three, reports a testimony of faithfulness. And I want to argue this is a testimony 
of God's faithfulness. A testimony of God's faithfulness. So these next verses outline for us God's two responses to Abraham. They testify that God is faithful to keep his promises. A true testimony of God's faithfulness to us. So let's look at these two responses as we wrap up tonight. So response number one, the provision. The provision. So back to our scene. Abraham's about to slay his son. He's got the knife. He's ready to do it. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said his favorite thing, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So this reveals the heart of the test. If Abraham would have stopped, maybe on day two of the journey, or maybe tried to argue his way out of it or laugh it off like he might have done before, he would not have experienced God's provision with this kind of magnitude. He wouldn't have experienced it. He followed through and he experienced God's blessing. So have you ever tried a shortcut, a test from God? Maybe God's testing you and you say, okay, find a way out of it. Okay, that was a close one. Abraham followed through to the end and he experienced a tremendous blessing here. So God interrupts that sacrifice. God didn't just interrupt it. What did he also do? Provided a substitute. Provided a substitute. This is what God did. So look at verses 13 and 14 now. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, what? A ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Or you know it as what? Jehovah Jireh. Or if you want to learn some Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh. All right? As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This is what God did. He didn't just stop it. He demanded a substitute. And he provided it. This is God's provision. Response number one. Response number two is the pledge. It's the pledge. Look down at verses 15, or verse 15. Now, God didn't just stop the sacrifice, but he also provided a goat. He did these things, but he also renewed his covenant with Abraham. This is the pledge he made to Abraham. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. There's a term that's important for our reading of the story. A second time God calls him from heaven. Verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And you see the same promise reiterated from chapter 12 on to here. He's renewing it. Pledging again, I'm going to keep my promise, Abraham. Okay, now the question you might ask here for application purposes is what, what if Abraham disobeyed? He didn't do it. What do you think would have happened? We got to say, okay, I'm done with you. Okay, again, it's not an easy question to answer. But I'm going to say no. God wouldn't have been done with them. If you think back to the first promises to Abraham in chapters 12 and 15, who pursued whom? Did Abraham seek out God and say, hey, can you bless me or what? What's going on here? I'm ready for the blessing. No, God pursued Abraham. 
God pursued Abraham and decides to make this covenant. He decides to bless Abraham. And does he also set conditions on it? No, again. So why the test? Why this test? That's the question we naturally go to now. Why any of our tests? Why do we have tests in this life? If God already knows the outcome, if he knows how we're going to respond, why is he going to put us through all his grief? Like Beethoven said, you know, he's going to submit us to these cruel and unusual punishments so that even the loveliest things are just going to be destroyed just with the greatest of ease. We can't enjoy any of these things, taking away what's most precious to us. Is God just messing with us? The answer is no. He's not messing with us. Do you know why he's doing it? Do you know why God does these kind of things in our lives? Do you know why he did it in the life of Abraham? Here's how I'd answer this. He does it for, for us, for our benefit, and to show off his glory. That's why he does it. He sends us tests for our benefit. How would you like to be a Christian who never got tested by the Lord? That would be the question for you. I'd be scared if that were me. If I never received any tests from the Lord, I'd be frightened. But God sends us tests because he loves us. He wants to prove our faith. He wants to show us how mighty he is. He wants to show us that his strength is perfected in our weakness. One preacher from the 1800s said this, It is only when we are really put to the test that we discover what God is. So God blesses Abraham with land, many descendants. This is what he does in his promise here, in his pledge. Triumph over enemies. Great blessing through his seed. Okay, so while God doesn't guarantee us those, those things, does God promise you land, by the way? I know many of us want acreage and we want land, but okay, I just haven't received that promise. But he does promise to meet our greatest needs. And what is our greatest need? It's our sin debt. He has provided a lamb for that. And who is it? Christ. So that's the conclusion of the story. Movement number three. We can see how God responded to Abraham. He interrupts the sacrifice, provides a substitute, and renews his covenant with Abraham. He's doing it all because he loves Abraham. And he wants us today to see his example. We can learn from it too. And this is why the Old Testament is so great, because it's full of stories like this. And the New Testament recognizes that and refers back to them. That's why we need to be students of both Testaments. But there's one more verse here, and don't read over it. It's, it's important. Verse 19. It's like an epilogue here. Verse 19 serves as the conclusion to the story. It says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, right where they came from. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So did Abraham, did he know what's going on? He told, hey, he was serious and said, we're going to come back. We're going to worship the Lord, and we're going to return to you. He did it. It happened. God was faithful to keep his promises. So now in conclusion, what are some lessons that we can learn from Abraham's life? We've already seen several that we can do, how to respond to tests, these kind of things, but let's look at more in detail as we close. How can we learn to have faith in God when it's time to sacrifice what's most precious to us? How can we learn this? I have uh, three suggestions for you. Number one, Trust God with what's most precious to you, even when you don't understand. That's lesson one. Trust God with what you find most precious, even when you don't understand what's going on in this test. The Holy Spirit actually tells us why Abraham had so much confidence. Okay, he didn't give me it directly last night, but he told me in Hebrews, okay? <laughs> Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Turn there if you will. You can read from the screen. It says, by faith, Abraham, 
when he was tested, sounds like uh, language from chapter 22 of Genesis, right? Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his, his what? His only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said. This is the promise God made to Abraham. And Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. So again, Abraham knew what was at stake with this test. But Abraham considered that God is able to raise what? People even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That explains why Abraham had so much confidence. He thought, okay, even if it goes to the very end and I do slay my son, I slice him into pieces and I burn him on this altar, God is able to raise people from the dead. That's how much confidence Abraham had. And the New Testament gives us that kind of insight. So for you, trust God in this kind of test. Have faith in him even when you don't understand. That's the first lesson. The second lesson would be trust God, have faith in God concerning what's most precious to you because his plans are way bigger than you realize. Way bigger than you realize. His plans are bigger than your immediate situation. They're bigger than your immediate situation. First Peter chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His plans are bigger than your immediate situation. You can trust God with that. But his plans are also bigger than your situation. They're bigger than your situation. This is, this is an amazing idea here. And it really summarizes chapter 22. This uh, Bible teacher said, Any Israelite who heard this story would take it to mean that his race owed its existence to the mercy of God and its posterity to the obedience of their ancestor. God's plans and our tests are bigger than just us. What if, God, what if Abraham just said, okay, this is just my test, this is my, my cross to bear, it has no impact on anybody else. We don't actually know what he was thinking right there exactly, but either way, God's plans are way bigger than even Abraham's situation. They extended way beyond Abraham's situation. His plans are bigger than that. So you can trust God because of that. Trust God for that. And finally, number three, We can trust God, we can have faith in God when it comes to what's most precious to us because he has provided us atonement. He has provided that for us. Okay, so we're in chapter 22 of Genesis. Fast forward just a little bit. Fast forward maybe more than just a little bit into Israel's history to the time of the Levitical priesthood. Now we're thinking in those terms. Now think about the temple sacrifices. Think about all those lambs, all the goats, All the bulls sacrificed time and time again, year after year. Priests always up to their knees in blood. They were longing for a time when sacrifice for man's sin is done once and for all. And then, fast forward a little bit more. We see this eccentric prophet who ate locusts and wear these crazy garments. What did he say when he came on the scene? He said, look, behold, who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided us with atonement. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. John 3.16, let's not sneer at that anymore. Let's, let's love John 3.16 again. It used to be the most popular verse when I was little, and now we make fun of it. Let's not sneer at it anymore. For God so loved the world. In what way did he do that? He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. God has provided us atonement, and that's the primary reason why we can trust him, because he's going to provide for us. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the night you've given us. Thank you for this great lesson of faith from Abraham. We thank you, Lord, that you gave him the perseverance, the strength to pass this test. We can truly learn from it, Lord. We can truly learn that we can trust you with what's most valuable to us, what we see most, uh, most precious to us. Lord, even when we don't understand the test, pray that we trust you. Pray that we trust you because your ways are bigger than ours. Your plans are bigger. And Lord, you have provided us with the true atonement in Christ. And for that, we're grateful. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.